There's no doubt that the healthcare sector is facing many challenging data privacy and security issues. Mickey Trapathy is dealing with many of those challenges up close. He's the co-chair of the Privacy and Security Tiger Team and chair of the Information Exchange Workgroup that both advise the HIT Policy Committee of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. On top of that, Mickey is also CEO of the Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative, which helped create several regional health information exchanges and also operates a regional extension center in New Hampshire. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee, Managing Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'll be speaking with Mickey Trapathy about some of the most pressing privacy and security issues that he sees facing the healthcare sector. So to begin, what are the biggest privacy and security challenges that you see the healthcare sector facing now? And what emerging privacy and security risks and threats in the healthcare sector are you most concerned about? I think that there's probably two or three categories. There's all of the regular stuff that um, you know, digitization of information is creating across the board. So, you know, healthcare isn't any different, isn't any different or immune from any of those. So all of the issues that people face with, I mean, my, my credit card was just, was just breached, you know, two weeks ago and we had to cancel my card and wait for a new one and all of that is just a part of the electronic security issues that we face, you know, living in this uh, electronic world. So, you know, you face all of that. Plus, on top of that are the specific issues related to healthcare. You know, I would put them into a few categories. One is the issues related to data exchange and what types of security is used for data exchange and what types of data sharing preferences that patients may have about how their data is, is used and shared can be conveyed with that information as it moves from one place to another. So that's not necessarily a security issue per se. So I'm, you know, mixing in privacy as well as security. But both of those, if you take both of those together, that's certainly one set of issues. The second set of issues I would point to is mobile devices, just in general. If you talk to any CIO, I think they will tell you in an honest moment that mobile devices are sort of one of the scariest aspects of security in particular in healthcare just because of the whole phenomenon of, you know, BYOD, bring your own device, the um, increasing expectations of anyone in a hospital or even a, you know, practice environment that they ought to be able to access everything in a seamless way on their personal devices, be able to access work things, private things, all on the same device. And even a device given to them by the hospital, let's say, people start to feel a sort of sense that that's a personal device and they start doing personal things on it as well as work. So all of a sudden, it's hard to lock those down in a way that provides the security you, you, that you want. So that's a, you know, that's a second area that's an important area as we go forward. And then the third area I would point to is all of the complexity around data sharing with special cases like behavioral health, minors, substance abuse, all of that. Because again, as we increasingly start to share this stuff and make it available in, in what you would think are seemingly simple ways, like on a patient portal, it actually becomes very complex in terms of what you can make available on a patient portal when you think about minors, for example, and it's very, very easy to have um, privacy breaches because uh, there's a lot of complexity in that area. Now, you mentioned minors. I know that's a subject that the Tiger team has been recently tackling. Why is that such a challenging issue? It's quite a dilemma. So the reality of the situation today 
is that a lot because of the complexity of the issue with minors. So maybe I should just describe that first. The issue with minors is that from the ages of somewhere around 12, it can stay, it can be as early as, you know, let's say 11 to somewhere around 14, depending on which state you're talking about and which condition you're talking about. Minors who are still under 18, but they're minors have certain independent rights to treatment as well as the sharing of information about that treatment that is independent from their parents' uh, permission to be able to see any of that information or even give permission over that over that treatment decision. So the issue that you face there then is that typically a patient will have full access to a, a child's record. And, you know, I have three children. And I certainly expected that, that I would be able to, you know, as, as their parent, be able to have access to their record and be making the treatment decisions for them. But if you just take Massachusetts, for example, there are certain treatments, anything related to birth control, abortion, sexually transmitted diseases, all fall into a category where the minor in question, it might start from 12 years old all the way up to 18 years old. In that period, they have certain rights and confidentiality protection between them and their provider, and the parent is not allowed to um, have access to that information unless the child gives permission. So you can imagine now then as we think about an electronic world where a patient portal is made available and typically a patient portal will just make all of the patient's information available on a portal, right? Because that's what we want is we want liquidity of data and the portal should make everything available. And increasingly, you know, that's the growing pressure in consumerism and healthcare is give me my data, you know. But in this particular case, you have the situation where you've got a patient portal that a parent may have access to. Or indeed, if there is a portal set up, the parent probably does have access to it because they created it when the, when the child was younger, there is certain information that the parent is now not authorized to see unless the child wants them to authorize it, wants to authorize it. So how do you construct a patient portal and any sharing of information where a parent might be a part of that information flow that protects the child's well-established rights or statutory or regulatory rights? So that's that's the general issue um, that, that makes it very complex. What adds to the complexity of it is that literally every state has different laws and regulations about this. So if you go from state to state, you will find that there are different laws applied to different conditions giving minors certain rights over certain types of information and certain types of treatment. And though, so those are not uniform across the states with which treatments or um, types of conditions that covers, nor is it uniform what ages that those minors' rights get triggered. And indeed, in some states, you have a situation where the ages are different for different conditions. So um, in a state, and I forget whether it's Mississippi or Missouri, I believe that I think a child has, uh, starting at the age of 12, has independent rights over anything about birth control and starting at 14 over anything about substance abuse. So even with respect to the ages that get triggered in a given state, it's different. So that raises a lot of complexity for electronic systems. Now, you, you mentioned patient portals, and they are increasingly important for healthcare organizations to meet the High Tech Act meaningful use requirements for allowing patients to view, download, and transmit their health records. And the portals also help organizations comply with HIPAA in terms of giving patients access to their health records. Now, with all that being said, what else do you think healthcare providers are struggling with when it comes to the privacy and security and giving patients access to their data via the portals? 
the part of consumer empowerment that we want to be able to give more and more information to patients. And increasingly, because patients are bearing more and more of the cost of their care through co-pays, co-insurance, and what have you, they're taking a greater interest in um, being able to have access to their records as well. But there are, you know, we just talked about minors, which is a, you know, a special case, but an important case that's very difficult. Uh, some of the other issues that start to come into play are in the, on the other end of the spectrum, which is, let's say, the elderly. Now, there isn't anything special about the elderly, but I just use that as a case of the question of what's, what's called access for family and friends and personal representatives, which is something that the Tiger team dealt with earlier this year. So leaving aside electronic systems altogether, under HIPAA, a patient is allowed to designate a so-called personal representative who would have access to his or her information um, with the permission of the patient. And there's also a provision in HIPAA that allows family and friends to have access to a patient's information as long as the patient doesn't object. So right there you have two different types of rules for access by others to a patient's record. So that's a level of complexity as well. You know, in one, it's family and friends have access unless the patient objects. In the other, it's patient has to give an affirmative permission to a personal representative for them to have access. So that, you know, again, you know, all of a sudden you have this complexity of trying to figure out, well, how do I manage that when I'm establishing a patient portal account for a patient and issuing usernames and passwords to patients and to their personal representatives and to their family and friends? Some of the complexity that arises there is that the easiest solution, and I myself am guilty of this when, you know, I had uh, my father was sick is the easiest solution is, as you can imagine, the we set up a, peri- a patient portal account that I set up in my father's name, and we all share the username and password for that account, right? So my sister does, my niece, my nephew, you know, we all are the grandchildren. They all share that same username and password. That's not a good thing from a privacy perspective. You want to be able to have each of them issue their own usernames and passwords so that you can track, you know, who's coming in and who's coming out if there is a breach and also so that you can differentially be able to have different types of access to information based on who you are. So, for example, I may have a personal representative designated for, you know, for myself. Maybe it's my attorney or someone else if I'm incapacitated. But I may not want that personal representative to have access to the ability to schedule an appointment or to ask for a prescription refill. Well, if we all log in on the same username and password, there's no way for the system to be able to differentiate who that is coming in, and everything is available to everyone. So how you manage that from a technology perspective as well as from a workflow perspective, because now you think about that from the provider side, you know, now you have, you know, front desk people in the provider's office having to understand the different types of accounts that can get set up on a patient portal and the different rules to follow about, oh, is this the patient? Is this the patient's grandmother? What, you know, what is the grandmother a personal representative or a family member? Are there different rules that apply for them? Can I even give them a username and password? You know, do I have to have visual identity proofing? All of those issues start to come into play and, and become very complex. And it's, it's sort of, there are no national standards or national rules or guidelines about this. Um, so that's one of the things that we at the Privacy and Security Tiger team um, tried to do in this area is offer some best practice suggestions and the suggestion that ONC provides some best practice guidelines um, to help providers in, in this area of, you know, differential access to a patient portal. 
Now, aside from the minors issue and um, some of the portal issues, are there any other privacy and security issues that you expect the Tiger team will be tackling this year? And have any of those plans changed since ONC has been revamping and shuffling around its advisory work groups? So right now, we're working on the minors issue right now. We just started. I think we just had one um, Tiger team meeting so far on the minors issue, and we expect that's going to carry over probably the next couple of months um, because there's a lot of complexity in that in that uh, set of issues. So that, that could take us a little while. We just finished some work with some recommendations that were unanimously approved by the policy committee on dealing with um, so-called Title 42 information. So that's federal information related to federally uh, subsidized substance abuse programs, which have their own set of uh, privacy rules related to data sharing. And up until now, there's been sort of a a stalemate in the industry about how to do this because the rules are um, so complex and really were written at a time that was, you know, for a paper world. And they also are in statute. So they're actually in the statute you know, itself, not a regulatory thing that makes it a little bit easier for Department of Health and Human Services to change or modify if they want to, um, you know, try to uh, make something more fitting with an electronic world. In this case, we would have to go back and change the statute um, related to data sharing. So we were able to, with uh, just fantastic input from SAMHSA, the agency that, that uh, is responsible for this area, as well as the Tiger team input, to create a framework for um, how we can sort of move incrementally um, with a set of standards to be able to share some of this information in a way that still offers the protection that is required by the statute. And in particular, we um, had sort of a four-step, four tiers of capability that we defined, you know, and as you go up the tiers, you're able to share more and more information still adhering to the rules, and they had corresponding technology functional kinds of requirements that would allow you to follow the rules in, you know, in, in a richer and deeper way as you start to implement that technology. So the policy committee approved the recommendations that we had to have Tier 1 be a part of voluntary EHR certification for the Stage 3 meaningful use systems and then a part of voluntary certification for behavioral health EHR systems. So that, you know, that, that was another significant piece of work. I think, you know, going forward right now, our agenda hasn't changed, although we do anticipate that there will be a, an ONC strategy plan coming up um, that will be a follow-on to the 10-year vision document that they've uh, already created, and that will be coming out sometime in the fall. So we would certainly expect that there may be some issues that we need to address there. And then there's also a task force, another task force that I co-chair um, that is reviewing the Jason report, which is a report put together um, under the auspices of ARC by the Jason uh, Advisory Group, which is a, a group of scientists who advise the federal government. They created a report at the request of ONC and, and AHRQ on health information technology. We have a separate task force that's now reviewing that and is going to be making recommendations to ONC. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the Tiger team has asked for some input on that um, somewhere down the road here as well. As funding for the High Tech Act programs begins to wind down, what do you think will be the biggest impact on privacy and security? And related to that, do you think there's enough support for regional extension centers to continue helping healthcare providers that are smaller with the privacy and security issues that they tend to struggle with? The answer to the second one is definitely no. Um, you know, the federal funding is, you know, on, on its last year, 
Uh, for some RECs, it's already done. And for the ones who got later funding, like New Hampshire, we're on our last year, I believe. Um, so, you know, and, and there's no anticipation that there's any more federal funding for that. So, you know, each one of the RECs is then just going to be on its own to figure out what it wants to do um, and what its sustainability model is going forward. We ourselves are certainly getting, we're getting a lot of requests from providers to, on a fee-based services, to continue to help them on a, in a variety of ways. Privacy and security is just one of them, but, you know, meaningful use and helping them with security audits, um, things like that are the kinds of requests that we get. But it's really going to be case by case and state by state whether those RECs are able to provide those services at a price that, uh, that physicians find affordable and sort of important to what they need to do in this area. With respect to impact of high-tech funding ending, I'm not sure that it really affects privacy and security efforts that much, frankly, I think that uh, with the updates to HIPAA and the high-tech provisions in, in privacy and security and the HIPAA omnibus and the upcoming and the new uh, laws related to breach and breach penalties and breach notification, as well as the anticipated new rule on accounting for disclosures, I think all of that is, you know, headed in the same direction, which is there are industry or industry mandates um, and governmental mandates in other areas that really require that the cost of doing business, that, uh, that privacy and security is given very serious attention. So to the extent that organizations are strapped for money and they have too many things going on, I think that's probably the biggest danger in this area. You know, if you have ICD-10 going on at the same time with all this other stuff and uh, and it just really creates a capacity issue and a little bit of competition for resources, then perhaps that can become a sort of a risk point. But most organizations I know are saying, you know, privacy and security is first and then all the other stuff comes after. Thanks, Mickey. I've been speaking to Mickey Tripathi. I'm Marian Kopasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.